Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the news. It's the first news I've done since returning to the studio this week. Uh, I don't know why you would care about that, but I'm telling you anyway, because I care about it, maybe. So um, in the second half of the show or the second segment of the show, we are going to talk about Promising Young Woman, uh, a movie that is a big part of the Oscar conversation and justifiably so. Uh, a movie in which, well, to me, it's anyway, it's a monster movie in which men are the monsters. Uh, but we'll tell you more about it uh, as we get to that. It's also got a Oscar-type performance by Carrie Mulligan, who increasingly gives those kinds of performances. But at the beginning here, I'll tell you this before I introduce the panelists. Like, a lot of times, you know, what we do, in case you've ever wondered about this part, too, is we share links, you know, or we, I mean, usually the producer, Jonathan McPants, and I, we share some links back and forth, some ideas, he pulls some things, you know, like, what what, what could we talk about that isn't just focused on, say, a new movie or a new TV series, what kind of topics are. And sometimes we just share them and share them, and we just like, I don't know, what what is it? And suddenly this morning, I think we all we all kind of realized that we've been looking at links that were about the same topic, basically. Uh, and, and I'll tell you a little bit uh, about what I mean by that. So we, we, there was an article that I had spotted in uh, Vox. It's about how brands are trying to figure out what the post-pandemic world is going to be like and, and how to position themselves uh, to kind of uh, maybe celebrate or somehow or other uh, draft uh, off that uh, the, the new breeze uh, of something. And one of the things it explores is a notion, not a new notion at all, that the, there might be kind of a period of roaring 20s type hedonism. Uh, and uh, there, an example, there's already an ad from some company I've never heard of called Suit Supply. And it's just an orgy, basically. It's a picture of, of, of an orgy. But it, this whole question is, like, do we return to our bodies in that way or some other way? Meanwhile, very the very funny writer Josh Gondelman has a rather sentimental a piece in The Cut uh, called Long Live Hugs. It's about how he misses hugging and wants it to come back and wonders if it will come back and if it will come back the same way, uh, whether it will be something like blowing out birthday candles, where maybe we don't do that anymore, uh, although I think we're going to do that too. But uh, there's also a piece called I Hate You a Little Bit Right Now. It's about half vaccinated couples. One couple has finished out the vaccine cycle. The other member of the couple has not. Uh, and I think I'm coming to the end here. Everyone is beautiful and no one is horny. This is a piece that I'd picked up out of Blood Knife. It's, it's essentially about the fact that superhero uh, movies, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, um, movies in particular, kind of dominate the movie marketplace as well as related sci-fi picks and stuff like that, in which everybody is, in fact, yes, very beautiful, very ripped, uh, very diesel, uh, very pneumatic uh, but people don't really seem very sexually attracted to one another. And, you know, I mean, the, the relationships we do see, Tony Stark and Pepper Potts, seem not persuasively uh, chemical, you know. So those are all the those, – those are I, some of all the things that we looked at. And so uh, I have no idea where to start. Bill, you – oh, I have to introduce the panel. Wait, hold on. Uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg is development officer at uh, Connecticut Children's. Uh, and Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Now I can do this. So, Bill, where do you want to start? Uh, okay. So uh, just before the show started, I told Colin – 
I think I know where I can start. So I was, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to just say, to throw him a curve and say, I have no idea, Colin, when, like, what are you talking about? But I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, I think what, so I'll say two things, what all three of these pieces have connected with each other is that they all are in very different ways about touch and about what the meaning of touch is and what is touch going to be like in the post whatever that means pandemic era so i think so that there's the connection amongst the three what i respond to in particular you know because of what i do for a living is um the other thing that i think is interesting about the three of them considered together is that they're about kind of like the blurring of interpersonal communication and media which you know right now in the 21st century it's kind of silly to even talk about the differences between interpersonal communication and media because they're so thoroughly intertwined you know we get our cues about life from the movies and from advertising like in those pieces and how can you really dissect that anymore media are are so intertwined in our lives so there's i think where i see the connections among the three the, the, that they're all about touch and that they're all intertwined about media and interpersonal communication well, I think another thing that I would say, Tracy, is um, that they are about, I mean, I agree with everything that Bill just said, but they're also sort of about a liminal period, you know, a threshold period where we're not, we have one foot in one place, the pandemic, and another foot in another place, uh, the post-pandemic. And, and, and yeah, are all of our old choices going to come back, particularly as regards touch? I mean, it's weird because the second half uh, of this show, we're going to be talking about a movie about sort of, you know, men who ignore the whole question of consent. But there are much, in a very violent way, but there are much more subtle questions, it seems to me, that are of, of consent that are explored uh, in all of those pieces about, yeah, as Bill says, how are we going to touch one another? I mean, I'll I'll preface this by saying, you know, I am a hugger. Mm. Um, so I have missed hugs terribly. However, I am a hugger for folks that I'm comfortable hugging. You know how there are some people you meet them the first time and, um, you know, as soon as you're saying goodbye, they're ready to hug. And I'm kind of like, mm, not always. Like, I, I may not be there with you yet. So I feel like in setting more boundaries, the the whole no touching thing in the past year has probably been helpful. I know Bill mentioned he's not a huge handshake person. Um, and I, I hope that what, we see is a return to um, reciprocated affection and touch. But also maybe this was a time for us to reset that not everybody wants to be touched. I have a lot of friends who are not huggers and that's fine. Um, but to have to tell somebody like, I'm not a hugger. Sometimes you get that like sort of appalled look or something. And I'm, I'm hoping that this maybe sort of leveled it out a little bit. Um, but I also do hope that once that we are, all vaccinated, reach the herd immunity and everything. I want the people who are sort of looking to return to a little bit of hedonism to be able to do that. 
Right. So, I mean, I think Gondelman at the end of his piece kind of comes out where you're talking about. He says, me, you know, he, he talks about how much he hopes that hugs are, are going to come back. But he says, maybe we'll come out on the other side of this with a heightened awareness of each other's boundaries, an elevated consciousness of what we can do to make other people feel safe, how to provide care for, for each other. Uh, we'll be more conscious of our own comfort for sure and hopefully of others too. Uh, he goes on a little bit from, from there. But, uh, you know, that's. I think, you know, we often do sort of talk this out in terms of whether we're a hugger or not or whether we're a toucher or not, whether we're comfortable with that or not. And But Tracy, I think, has identified the other part of this, which is the, the person we are getting ready to, uh, to to touch in some way. And And Bill, I do think there's an argument anyway that, yeah, some people are going to go straight for the hedonism, but I, I, we, because we've been through such a careful period, maybe people will continue to be careful in a way that's good? Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, all of these pieces that, that try to predict what the post-pandemic, and, you know, every time I say post-pandemic, I want to put that in quotes because I, I don't even know, like, really what that means. Um but all of these pieces that try to predict that they're they're kind of going out on a limb because we don't really know um and you know one one the reason why things can be so difficult to to handle is we never can quite parse out how things will play out and what the unexpected consequences are going to be so it's so uh, here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. I have a 19-year-old son. He was a very sociable kind of guy. This year has been really, really difficult for him. I, I don't think he would mind me saying that on the radio. Um, and he is absolutely convinced that the post-pandemic era is going to be this era of like unbridled hedonism, that people are going to be partying you know, like it's 1929. And he's, he's convinced of that. I'm not so sure. Um, he and I obviously are coming from di very different parts of the generational spectrum. But for me, this is going to be like a really awkward reentry. Um, I don't know what, how people are going to react. I don't know how long it's going to take to feel like we can start doing things together. I'm not absolutely convinced that it's going to be throwing all the shackles off. And I think that's going to be very different for very different groups of people. So, yeah, go ahead. Go. Of, yeah, go ahead, Tracy. Sorry. I think one of the things we're missing here is, you know, I think one of you touched on it before, is that not everybody went into lockdown. Not everybody right. observed these, you know, these careful measures. So there is a portion of the population that has still been engaging in whatever they were going to do. So I have a feeling that for the folks who are emerging from being quarantined or distancing or whatever term you want to use, my hope is that it is a little more cautious. Now, however, once those two sort of populations merge in public, in a bar, on a beach, whatever it is, that, that's what I'll be interested to see what happens. Will there still be that sort of conflict of the folks who never um, tamped down on their socialization or hedonism and, and the folks who are just reemerging back into it. And how will those social interactions go? Because I know I am incredibly awkward in person now, even masked and distanced. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I've lost that sort of 
ability to have small talk communication. See, I, I feel as though, well, okay, so among us, probably, oddly enough, I'm the biggest introvert. And actually, it's interesting, too, because Katie Tolarski is uh, the technical producer for the show today. Katie's uh, an extrovert um, in, for, in a, I think, kind of, a, at least in terms of the shows here, a society of introverts. Most of our producers are, are introverts, um, you know, and and, and I, I certainly am. So I feel a little bit more as though during the pandemic, people have had to meet me on my terms <laughs> because it's like, oh, you want to talk to me? OK, well, I'm going to decide how much we're going to talk and I'm going to decide how close we're going to stand. I'm going to decide how long <laughs> this is going to last. Uh, and I don't want to hear any crap about it from you because there's a pandemic going. So I, I in a way, feel as though, yeah, I, I was a bit maybe a little bit uh, more ready for this Um uh, you know, Katie's slacking me, saying she can't wait for a dance party. Yeah, I would probably. I don't know. I could just do the, you know, uh, the Tom Cruise thing and and dancing alone in my house. Uh, um, <laughs> I could wait another year before I have to do that. But I do feel as though, you know, if Gondelman's right, and I hope he's right, that'll be the case. That everybody sort of looks at everybody else and says, okay, how much more. Are you ready to add in, you know, 5% more social interaction, 10% more, 15%? But, you know, that will just in the same way that we want everybody to do that, like on college campuses when they're dating and, you know, making sure that yes gets said before you do something. I kind of want some version of that uh, out in the world. It's still consent, you know, whether it's a sexual encounter or a handshake or a hug. So, yeah, I hope that we we increase that. And if it becomes more of a part of our society, perhaps there will be certain things that we address in the second segment that won't be as much of an issue because consent will be in all of our interactions. Maybe. But Bill, you know, but since I have a, you know, certified cultural theorist here, uh, I feel as though we also should squeeze in that piece. It was in a publication I never heard before called Blood Knife. And it's it, it, this is the one about how superhero movies and sci-fi movies and stuff have these super attractive people with these incredibly sculpted bodies who don't seem physically interested in one another, you know. And it, it, it sometimes almost seems a little quaint and courtly. For example, in The Avengers, at a certain point, we're tipped off to the fact that Natasha and the Hulk or Bruce Banner or something kind of, you know, have been eyeing each other. But, you know, that's like about as far as it goes. Um, and And – it was interesting because, I mean, the writer depicted this as kind of a sense of almost personal armor that at a time when we're ready to do battle against communism or the pandemic or or whatever, we, we tend to armor up. I, what did you, Bill, make of that whole piece? It's a great piece. Um, I'm glad you brought it to our attention because I've never heard of this website either, bloodknife.com. And, and you know, just by the title of the website, I probably would have avoided it yeah. if I had heard of it um but this is this is a really great piece um i i think it's kind of like this sprawling cultural criticism that goes back through the decades and looks at all kinds of different stuffs uh, but you know the jumping point the jumping off point that that you mentioned is the physical perfection of actors today and i've taken notice of that as well that how even actors who you don't associate with, you know, thick muscles and a sculpted body just have the most incredible physiques that clearly demand a tremendous amount of deprivation and time. I'm thinking about um, 
one of the leads on television show called uh, really popular television called show called This Is Us, uh, Sterling K. Brown. And he, you know, has appeared in stuff with his shirt off. And I'm just like, really? Like, this guy looks like a superhero. And like, but you don't think of him in these roles. So that absolutely is true. But the author is also right that these are kind of sexless movies. Um, and, there, you know, there's something kind of disturbing about how the idea of any kind of sex between these characters is something that might really freak parents out and might, you know, really rile people up. And yet we're perfectly okay with the rampant violence that occurs in, in those movies. So, you know, I do think that there's a supportable argument that, that our culture is becoming more rather than not less prudish um and and yet more accepting of violence i mean this is all going to come up in our next segment when Mm -hmm. we talk about this film too so yeah it's it's a really great piece that i think is worth people checking out yeah tracy i know you were kind of intrigued by that kind of history of physical fitness that's in the piece yeah i mean i can't say i am the most um physical sporty person ever but so i've never really thought about it but just the history of you know, it was after certain periods of trials and tribulations that this focus in society in different societies on bodies and wellness and um, maybe not even necessarily wellness, but the physical appearance um, crops up. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens post COVID, although I think a lot of people have taken up working out at home and, and healthifying that way. Um, but I liked seeing it through all different cultures, Eastern, Western, and um, different periods of time. Yeah, you know, it's possible that in a way, this whole that whole world has seen down the road a little bit, you know? I mean, although Katie Tularski is rightly uh, pointing out that one of the other big cultural fads or crazes of this year was Bridgerton, which is like, you know, people making a lot of sexy time um, <laughs> in the latter installments. But yeah, maybe there's this kind of idea that you really take care of your body, but you, you know, don't necessarily give it all that freely uh, to other people. But more than that, I guess, Bill, to your original point, we take cues from all this stuff. I don't think we let culture completely dictate how we feel about things, but we do take cues from what advertising tells us, from what movies tell us. uh, And there's a whole generation of kids growing up with these comic book heroes who are totally diesel but not necessarily particularly intimate or attracted to one another. And and that'll do something, right? That'll have, uh, and I think it's that same piece by R.S. Benedict and Bloodknife who says, I don't know whether he or she or they are right about this, but suggesting that millennials and Zoomers are less sexually active uh, than their predecessor generations. Yeah, I have heard that in some social science research as well. that piece also kind of it it starts to go up you know toward that dreaded word neoliberalism you know and just this sense that um it's the commodification of everything including our bodies and you know uh, that our bodies aren't really like for use value they're just you know to be put on display somewhere not for the pleasure that they can bring us but just as sort of an an asset, you know, so I've got the big house, I've got the big bank account, and I've got the beautiful body. I think Peter Gabriel even sang a song about all of that. 
And, you know, there is that. Of course, when we're talking about commercial media, like we're always going to be moving toward that kind of commodification. Hedonism might be promoted in some ads because hedonism can, you know, get people to spend a lot of money. I remember right at the thick of the pandemic when things were really, really awful, I saw this car ad promoting, you know, the open road is open again. And I literally screamed something at the TV that I can't say on public radio because I just found it so incredibly unethical and dangerous to be promoting the open road in the midst of a pandemic. But look, you know, these are the same people who brought us tobacco and addictive prescription drugs and everything else. Calories. yeah, I don't think we should expect anything different. I mean, I, uh, my whole idea of commercials is you just see things dripping with cheese and oil that look really good, like you should eat them, and they're all, you know, really, really bad for you. And and that including marketing, people's bodies, right? And marketing is a really unreliable narrator that way. But I do think that 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 push towards hedonism, and it is borne out in history. I was in reading Nicholas Christakis's book about the pandemic, the first sort of you know incomplete history of the pandemic, Apollo's arrow. He talks about it, you know, after the Black Plague. <laughs> there in the 14th century, there were people just immediately stampeding towards every kind of, of hedonism, yeah. uh, the you know, uh, sexual and gambling and drinking and licentiousness. Uh, one of the chroniclers, an Italian from Siena, Agnolo de Tura, said no one could restrain himself from doing anything. So before we we part company with this topic, uh, there one of the pieces that I mentioned that we haven't mentioned, although Tracy, it's like right on the nose, so to speak, for you is this half-vaccinated uh, piece. These are couples where, for one reason or another, one uh, one spouse uh, or one partner uh, has completed a vaccination cycle and the other one hasn't, which means that one of them has a whole series of choices uh, and freedoms that the other one doesn't have. And that's like right where you live right now. Yeah. So um, working at a hospital and, and being in the hospital sometimes, um, I received my vaccinations in January and February. And there was just this sort of weird freedom, maybe a little bit of guilt. Actually, I would say probably a lot of guilt um, at having been vaccinated because I hadn't gone to grocery stores, hadn't really done anything. Um, my kids were in school, but uh, you know, drop off and pickup was the most I had gone out. And I felt like I'm like, I can go to a grocery store. I can grab a coffee and feel a little better about it. Um, I mean, obviously we're still being careful because my husband's not vaccinated. My kids aren't vaccinated and we want to keep people safe. But it does. It comes with a little bit of guilt and a little bit of, okay, maybe I can let this go a little bit. You know, I can wear one mask instead of two, unless, you know, I wear two if I'm in the hospital. Um, And then guilt around friends, too, because it's going to be some time before my age group, um, my peers get vaccinated. I've had some who are eligible today, but for a while, a lot of folks won't be. and it's just a very weird sort of social standing thing. You know, it, people know I work in a hospital, so they understand I was vaccinated for that. But then when other folks aren't and my husband isn't and I can do things more comfortably and I have to remind him and my kids to, you know, take extra precautions, I feel like I'm a little finger waggy and a little uh, holier than thou sometimes. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I we should probably just take a break here, but um, I, I've completed my vaccination cycle too, and I, it doesn't really affect my life. That I think it it mostly affects my life with my producers, uh, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants. I'm here in the studio; they can't come in, um, and uh, but you know, other than that, I, I but you can see where where. I was interested. One of the people in the piece said that she, I think it was a, a woman who said she would be comfortable with her husband flying on some kind of necessary trip to California or something, but not going out like for dinner with their friends when she couldn't. It's kind of, you know, I think we find out what we value when we see what we covet. Uh, all right. Let's take a break. We've got to leave some time here for a promising young woman. All right, so we're back. A Promising Young Woman uh, is uh, nominated in all kinds of categories. It is the work of somebody that I think most of us have never heard of, Emerald Fennel, unless you play, pay really close attention to the credits of Killing Eve, where she's a second-season showrunner. Um, the film is nominated for Best Picture. She would be one of four producers sharing that award. She is nominated for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, so that's uh, quite a sweep for her. Carrie Mulligan, uh, who I can't say enough about these days, is nominated uh, in the Best Actress category. This is a, a the story of a, and believe me, we will not spoil anything, but it's not spoiling anything to tell you the premise because the premise is set up, you know, pretty much immediately. This is the, uh, um, the story of a woman who, because of a terrible psychic wound, is uh, unable to film form normal relationships with men and mostly spends her time exposing the predatory nature uh, of uh, of men using herself as kind of a human bait, uh, pretending to be drunk and, and unable to cope uh, in cl- nightclubs and places like that so that men will try to take advantage of her only to find out that she is not drunk and quite uh, able to fend for herself. So uh, maybe that's about as far as I could go, at least initially. Before we listen to the, uh, uh, the idea, the thoughts of our panel, let's hear a little clip from the movie, you're going to hear um, uh, one of those kinds of interactions uh, where Cassandra, Cassie, uh, the character played by Carrie Mulligan, uh, has wound up in the uh, home of a guy named Neil, played by the guy who was McLovin in Superbad. Uh, and let's hear how that goes. You know, I, um, I nearly didn't come out tonight. And I am so glad that I did. I feel such a connection to you. Could you call me a cab? You just got here. I need to go home. No. Don't go. Stay. Hey, Neil. Yeah. Is that I need to go home? Holy Whoa, 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 whoa. What is this? Are you some kind of psycho or something? Why'd you say that? I just thought that you were... Drunk? Yeah. Really drunk? I think you should go. But a second ago, you were determined for me to stay. You were pretty insistent, actually. I'm a nice guy. Why are you so freaked out, Neil? You really need to calm down. At least you didn't try and have sex with me while I was passed out. Are you trying to say that I'm like a predator or something? I don't know. Are you? I am a nice guy. You keep saying that. But you're not as rare as you think. You know how I know? No. Because every week, I go to a club. And every week, 
I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy like you comes over to see if I'm okay. You want to me still? No, thank you, man. Hmm. No one ever does. Okay, let's uh, just begin with getting some general reactions to the to, to the film as a whole. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, why don't you get us started? I actually really enjoyed it. I it didn't really fit into a specific category, so it made it interesting to watch. Um, certain parts of the storyline, you sit there and you're like, where is this going? Oh, oh, wait, there's still 40 minutes left. I think we all had that reaction. Um I did find that certain parts of it were not as satisfying as I wanted it to be. And I, I think that says more about me than maybe about it. And the more I thought about it, um, I'm thinking maybe that's what the movie wants us to realize about ourselves as well, is that there are certain parts that were left a little unanswered to maybe make ourselves question why we wanted a little more. Yeah. Um, I think that it spoke really well to what women expect um experience um and what men expect you know that there is this sort of underlying current of misogyny um in a lot of social situations and that you know for all the talk and and media play that things like consent and respect have gotten that when it comes down to it that that's not always the case and um i i can't think of a single female um heterosexual female that i know that has not been in a situation where they were almost taken advantage of or taken advantage of in some sort of way. And this this was sort of a little satisfying, but not fully satisfying. Yeah. Um, Bill, you know, there's uh, I don't even know who originally said this, but there's there's that line that um, men's greatest fear is that women will laugh at them and that women's greatest fear is that men will kill them. Uh, and that's almost a, that's almost the plot of this movie in, in a way. But uh, yeah, your thoughts. Um, I'm in a pretty similar place with tracy i it's it's i think it's really good i don't think it's great um there's there's a lot of deliberately conflicting styles and genres here it's a revenge thriller it's a dark comedy it almost seems like it's a rom-com at times you mentioned monster movie colin i think Mm -hmm. and like it is, but not supernatural monsters. The, the the monster part of it is in that phrase, I'm a nice guy. And the thin line between nice guys and monsters. I think but I but but I think I don't I don't mean that as a criticism. I think the conflicting styles actually reflect really well with the mental state of Cassie, who I think it's fair to say is living with PTSD because of this event from the past. Um, but I think that while it's very, very good, and I and I think it deserved those Oscar nominations, um, I don't know if it deserves to win in, in those categories, um, especially, you know, Best Picture, because I think there are some narrative flaws um i pointed out in our email exchanges particularly at at the end they're a little hard to talk about without giving things away but while i was watching it i was thoroughly captivated it 
captivated by it. I, I, I think the performances are really good, the sound, the look, the sharp dialogue. But then after reflecting a little bit, I feel like the film sets us up to really want something that then it delivers. But to me, that was a little bit of a cop-out. I feel like the filmmakers blinked. I feel like they flinch a little bit when the the film itself deserved something a bit more courageous. And I and I'm sorry, I know that's really enigmatic, but I, I don't want to spoil anything. I just I just feel like there's an ultimate um Tracy used the word like lack of satisfaction, but but to me it was because I do feel like they kind of blinked from doing something a little bit more necessary and courageous. Uh, my reaction is I struggled with this movie all the way through and I was squirming because there's just, you know, this constant sense of male culp- culpability uh, here. Yeah. And, and I, I felt, uh, you know, very uncomfortable with my my own sex or gender uh, all the way through. And, and that caused me to, at times like the movie and at times hate it. I, d- I do feel as though ultimately... It reminds me a lot of the work of Jordan Peele in the sense that it's about a real problem. Racism is a real problem. Male sexual violence is a real problem. But the problem is treated in a slightly garish or fantastic way in the style of a monster movie. I mean, really, the visual signature of this movie involves a lot of very sort of garishly bright colors. Uh, Cassie mm-hmm. lives with her parents in this almost kind of parody of, a, you know, kind of tastelessly decorated house and, and there are other characters. I mean, everywhere you look, there are extremes. There's a hunting lodge, you know, with like wild boars heads sticking out of this. You know, there's a, a lot of that kind of stuff. And I feel like that might almost be turning into a genre. You know, the, the peel has perfected it, right? The movie that's about something very, very real, uh, but deals with it in a way that we're more comfortable associating with just pure entertainment. Uh, and, 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 you know, Tracy, one of the things that I noticed was that different actors were playing different ways. I mean, Alison Brie, who's a spectacular comic actress and, you know, has a kind of small to medium sized role in this movie, um, is she plays it for, you know, in a very subtle, serious way. Uh, you know, there are other performances that, you know, are, are a little bit more, you know, broad and comic and it's like almost... Uh, like, <laughs> like I don't know. They are all allowed to pick their own tones or something. <laughs> it was I, it was really interesting. And actually, until you mentioned that the um, one of the gentlemen was McLovin, I actually didn't put that together. Um, I did like that the movie held um, women who had been complicit in certain things accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did like that there were comedic actors playing relatively serious roles but with like that touch of dark comedy um i think allison brie actually was a great choice for this because she was a bit of a caricature of um a certain type of female Mm -hmm. too so i think picking somebody who was a comedic actor was a great choice um and and it was interesting to see some some folks who i identify very much with specific characters in different types of roles yeah there's some kind of connection between this 
and Glow, the, the terrific women's uh, wrestling series, because Allison Brie, and then the guy who is turns out to be the worst of all of the men, he is also uh, in Glow, uh, and and his performances. Well, we should say something anyway, Bill, about Carrie Mulligan's performance because I, I'd be pretty comfortable with her. I don't know who's uh, who else is up in that category, but well, I, obviously Frances McDormand would be too. Uh, I'd be very comfortable where they're getting an Oscar for this, and I think one of the things she has to do, and I think I can describe this without doing any spoiling, is she has to play this damaged person, and she has to play a person who has plausibly appeared to recover from some of the damage, and she has to play somebody who could plausibly attract a predatory man. There's sort of a lot of different things she has to do, but in particular, that idea of being broken and in ill health for most of the movie, and then a period in which she kind of blooms very plausibly, I think. It, it, I really thought this was a really interesting layered performance. Carrie Mulligan is is terrific. I, I can't argue with any of that. In fact, when I was saying that stuff about I'm not sure, you know, if it deserves best picture, I, I was thinking that she might she probably deserves best actress um, or best actor in a, in a um, female leading role. Um, she's she the sharp wit, the way she interacts with people, um, the way she doesn't overdo a lot of it. She, she really is terrific. And so somewhat ironically, but some, but also like really heartbreakingly, um, without like, it just shows how important the themes of the film are a really prominent review in variety actually criticized that Carrie Mulligan was cast in this role for basically like not being attractive enough. And they, they argued um, Margot Robbie is, is one of the producers. They argued that, you know, that character should have been Margot Robbie. And then eventually actually had to publish a uh, apology for that um, variety added a, a note saying that it regrets the insensitive language and insinuation that minimized her daring performance. Talking about being tone deaf, like the whole film uh, revolves around these issues. And yet even in the review, they went after her for that. But I think you're absolutely right that she is terrific in this role. And then another person playing against type is Molly Shannon who has a very small role, but kind of a little, kind of a key role in the film. And I also thought Bo Burnham um, uh, is terrific in his role as well. Yeah, I guess I, I would love to talk about that Molly Shannon scene. I'm a little bit worried about spoiling, but I mean, in, in yeah. a way, the, the, the scene raises a question about to what degree does the film endorse Cassandra's, you know, status and state, you know, and, and the Molly Shannon scene kind of suggests, you know, well, no, not really. Uh, but I, well, actually, what I wanted to ask Tracy is, would you and I guess it would depend on who you were talking to, which of your friends would you recommend this movie? And what would you say to somebody that you knew in the course of either recommending or not recommending it? I would probably recommend it. I would, you know, put one of the, a trigger warning on it for certain types of content that could be um, 
re-traumatizing for, for folks that have gone through certain situations. Um, but I also think it has the potential of making folks seem seen, be seen in a certain way um, and understood. And I would, I would definitely caveat that it's not perfect, but it is, it's well done and it addresses things pretty thoroughly. I think, you know, the fact that it didn't just go after um, male characters, but also some female characters and showing that it's sort of a, a very layered problem that um, can also have long lasting devastating effects beyond direct victims. I hope that didn't give too many spoilers. No, I don't think so. Okay. How about you, Bill? Yeah, I, I, I would remind, I would recommend it for people who have a taste for films that deal with extremely dark, difficult, important issues, but from a more satiric sort of twisted dark comedy lens, which I know not everybody can can appreciate. I I love that aspect of it. I love that it was a satire. Um, the whole opening scene, which is set like in this club and it does close-ups of these guys with dad bods gyrating Amazing. on the dance floor. I mean, that opening scene is a satire on the male gaze in film. Um, and then that kind of dark satire stays for the length of the film. So I would definitely recommend it, but but I would say, you know, you've got to have a willingness to, 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 to have those uncomfortable comedic moments, even when the themes are this serious. Yeah, I feel as though one of the things that I, 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 I didn't know anything about the movie before I saw it other than that Mulligan was in it. And I kind of did. I think I had he kind of heard about that review, too. But um, and I, for example, I didn't know that the person, uh, the auteur was uh, a showrunner from Killing Eve. It doesn't surprise me. And I've struggled a little bit with the series Killing Eve. I love Jodie Comer. Is that her name? She's I think she's just so spectacular. Sandra O's great, too. But there's a way in which. Killing Eve's insistence on on being a comedy, uh, in like with all this really sort of dark and black stuff happening, and and uh, there's a way in which the Sandra O's character is kind of trying to deal with her life the way a normal person would, and Jodie Comer, of course, playing such an incredibly broad, uh, uh, but but very very volatile and and multi dimensional assassin uh, part. I don't know. The whole thing ultimately doesn't hang together for me all that well. So I'm kind of not surprised to find out that that's where Emerald Fennel comes from. But I do. I want to see her second movie and her third movie and her fourth movie. There's just clearly just a ton of talent there and her ability to try to juggle something that's almost an impossible juggling act. I mean, I, I think it is really, really difficult to imagine how you can be funny, which this movie is at times, and kind of entertaining even as you squirm uh, and, but mm -hmm. uh, but also not let go of the seriousness of this of the dire nature of all this uh I, I, it's it's suggestive anyway of a really really terrific uh talent uh, but I, I and i would recommend this movie but i would also say or you can wait and see what she does next because i <laughs> bet it'll be even better all right we should probably take a break so we'll have time to do some recommendations
And we are back. First of all, let me uh, thank uh, all the people who need to be thanked, mainly two, uh, but Katie Jalarski, the big boss, uh, is in here uh, working as technical producer on the show today, running the board, all that stuff, uh, because Cat Pastor has a day off. Uh, we're going to be uh, regrouping at the beginning of next week with, uh, I think, all hands will be on deck, so that'll be really fun. And Betsy Kaplan and I are already talking about what to do on Monday for the scramble. Uh, Jonathan McPants almost always produces the nose, and that is the case today. He did uh, produce the nose. Uh, thanks very much for that. Um, I should also say that since it came up, uh, he was nice enough to tell me who actually is up against Carrie Mulligan for an Oscar. It's Viola Davis uh, for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Francis McDormand for Nomadland, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, uh, Andra Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday. Andra Day actually won the Golden Globe in that category. I haven't seen that performance or Vanessa Kirby, so I'll I think she's a terrific actor, so yeah, that could be uh, you know that could be a hotly contested category. There's some I don't I I think Viola Davis won't win. It's she's an amazing performer. That movie is so much. I think a Chadwick Boseman, Boseman movie that uh, it's sort of the it's the performance you remember. But that that'll be my pathetic little guess about it. All right, let's uh, hear some recommendations. And Tracy Wu Fastenberg, why don't you get us going? So I would say with everything that has happened this week, particularly um, Tuesday's violence in Georgia, uh, as an Asian woman, it behooves me to say, please, everyone, you know, take care of those in your life who may have been affected by this. Um, and also, I want to recommend an opinion piece on CNN. It's called To Be an Asian Woman in America. Um, take some time, read it, read up on Asian history, Asian American history in the United States. Um, this is not a new thing um, where anti-Asian racism has taken place. It's hundreds of years old and, and just really encourage folks to take some time and explore that. All right. Good recommendation. Yes. Uh, a, a very tough week. Uh, there seem to have been a lot of them, but this one uh, very, very tough. And and we did see, I, I don't think we should probably explain it, but we actually saw some, there's some parallels between Promising Young Woman and, and what happened this week. More, more than one, I would say. But anyway, Bill Usman, some recommendations. Um, I'd like to recommend a book by uh, Claudia Rankin. Uh, Claudia Rankin is primarily a poet, but she does a lot of different things in her books. Her new book is called Just Us, and it's a it's a deliberate play on justice. And the subtitle is An American Conversation. And it's a combination of poetry and short essays and visual imagery and found documents and social science research, all about, um, you know, racial turmoil in the United States in the 21st century. Her previous book was called Citizen. It got a lot of notice. It was about uh, both the killing of Trayvon Martin and a lot of other things. Um, and she's got a local connection. She teaches poetry at Yale University. Um, so um, I, th- I think it's really a fantastic book. I'm, in fact, I'm using it with students in the class right now. So it's Just Us, an American Conversation by Claudia Rankin. All right. You guys have left me with a little bit more time than I was expecting to have, but I, I think I can probably fill it. First of all, by I just I decided to sort of go to town, so to speak, on, on Carrie Mulligan, who I'm kind of insane about right now. Anyway, so uh, I would recommend Collateral. I don't know if either one of you has seen this, a four-part British uh, television drama uh, written and created by David Hare, interestingly enough. Uh, and it's they call it a police procedural without any of that police attitudinizing. That was Hare's description of it. Uh, it's kind of a police slash uh, 
I would say, kind of espionage movie, but um, very much kind of located uh, in London. Uh, it begins with the murder of a pizza delivery driver uh, who was shot in a London suburb and kind of sprawls out from there. Carrie Mulligan uh, does. It's a, very much of an ensemble piece, but Carrie Mulligan has, I think, the nominal lead in it. Uh, she plays uh, Kip Glaspie, a detective inspector assigned to investigate. Uh, but it's called Collateral. I believe it's on Netflix. It was originally on BBC Two. Uh, and I, I saw it when it came out in 2018, so it's been a little bit of a while. But my recollection was that it was uh, pretty terrific. And then, you know, uh, The Dig, uh, which is kind of the other one of the other big movies that she's released recently, is you know, it's a little bit masterpiece theatery, um, but she's amazing in it. Ray Fiennes is also amazing in it. Both of them uh, reveal themselves as just these chameleon actors. I mean, each of them gives a performance that resembles, as far as I'm concerned, no other performance that I've seen either one of them give. So if you like good acting, there's a reason uh, right there. It is the story of the discovery uh, of something, some kind of archaeological artifact. Uh, it's a, it's based on a, on a true story. Uh, the, the, it is based on an archaeological dig, hence the title, uh, on, on a site and sort of who winds up owning what. It's right at the on the onset, uh, on the cusp of World War II coming to uh, to Britain. So, uh, you know, it's not it's not exactly edgy, <laughs> but it's good. And if you like Carrie Mulligan, uh, all the more reason to watch. So, uh, so great to have these two terrific panelists, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Development Officer at Connecticut Children's, uh, Bill Usman, a Professor of Media Studies at Sacred Heart University. Thanks again to Katie Tularski and Jonathan McPants. And we'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Thanks for listening. <laughs>